This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Sleep down in the soil. We are talking oil. You heard Charlie just mention crude rallying today up about 2.5% to 51.68 a barrel. It's on track, in fact, for its biggest advance in about five months as the world's biggest oil exporters, mark your calendars, are getting ready to talk about global supplies. A lot going on in the energy and oil market specifically. Jessica Summers is oil trading reporter here at Bloomberg News. She's joining Jason and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Great to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. Talk to us because there's a couple of different stories um, as I was reading in this morning, trying to make sense of uh, what was going on in the energy markets. Tell us about the rally that we're seeing. Yes, exactly. There's a lot going on in the oil space, given the G20 meetings this week and leading into OPEC next week. In terms of this little surprise rally here... I would characterize it as a little bit of a relief rally. We got very oversold on Friday. Uh, if you just look at the technicals. We're down almost 8% on Friday. Exactly. If you look at the technicals, crude is sitting in oversold territory continuously now, the last couple days. So we were due to see a bit of a bounce back. Uh, also, in, on top of that, supporting crude today is also the fact that OPEC and allies will likely come together and cut production when they me next week. And that's something that investors are already sort of pricing into the market and expecting. It's, go ahead. So Jessica, help us understand the politics around this, because obviously yeah. we had a, a tweet from President Trump, uh, I believe last Wednesday, uh, and one of a number of comments that he has made about wanting uh, oil prices lower. It's further complicated, obviously, by his feelings and statements around Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a lot of mm-hmm. these big heads of state mm-hmm. seeing each other at the G20 later this week. What's the political frame of this? Yeah, there are a lot of surprises that may come out of these meetings this week and next week. Uh, and the, and the you know oil traders are looking for those headlines. And that's what we're going to see a lot of trading off of. In terms of policy and relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, there has been some tension recently uh, after the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, but Trump really showing his support for Saudi Arabia and sort of sticking by his ally. Uh, and I know last week Trump tweeted to Saudi Arabia thanking him for keeping oil prices down. So if Saudi Arabia, in fact, decides to cut with OPEC, that's sort of going against Trump. And that's sort of not showing the alliance there. So that will be interesting to watch. You know, it's interesting, too. We have a story by Alex Nussbaum on the terminal. I don't know if you saw this, Jason. It talks mm-hmm. about hedge funds haven't been this pessimistic about global oil prices since Brent crude was spiraling into its worst route in a general almost three years ago. It's interesting. And you pointed out to us that oil has really taken a dip in uh, November and it's down about 32% since the beginning of October. Mm -hmm. We were up at 76 and change a barrel. We're now at 51 and change. A very dramatic move, if you will. What are you hearing about kind of longer term uh, in terms of uh, some of the fundamentals and how it plays into oil prices? So in terms of hedge funds, they have really been lowering their bullish bets for quite some time now. So I almost want to say they kind of called this because they were they were already reducing their bullish positions when crude was much higher a month or so ago. Uh, you know, and the real problem here is that we're seeing, uh, you know, supply fundamentals and so supply and demand both falling short of expectations in a sense. You know, we have record Saudi Arabia production, record U.S. production, and then we have worries over demand growth growing into next year. 
The other really big problem is Iranian sanctions. So the market was prepared for Iranian sanctions to kick in this month, and then we'd sort of see less Iranian crude on the market. But instead, U.S. President Trump issues these waivers that right. gives countries exceptions, big countries like China, who's a big importer of Iranian oil. And therefore, the market wasn't expecting this. Now we sort of see too much of an oversupply. Well, and you talk about it's supply, U.S.-based supply. The Permian obviously sort of plays into this, right? I mean, yes. what what element is what's sort of underneath that and what are the implications of uh, the U.S. pumping more oil in its own country? Yes. The U.S. has proved very resilient over the last few years, and they are not one to forget about. Uh, definitely going into next year, right now we have record U.S. crude production. We keep hitting new and new records each week when we get the weekly data. And in terms of next year, we're actually expecting a lot of big pipelines to come online that's going to carry crude to the Gulf Coast for export. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a flood of U.S. crude exports onto the global marketplace next year. So that's something to watch as well. I think about that G20 meeting, Jason. It's going to be so crucial in terms of what we see between the United States and China, that's the trade deal. But it is interesting because they do often write, Jessica, at G20, they'll set the rules about what they want mm-hmm. in terms of oil production. The nations will all talk about it. And then that often sets the tone for what we get out of OPEC the following year. That's true. That's definitely true. And, you know, right now we're prepared for the fact that Saudi Arabia has said that producers, you know, need to cut production about one million barrels a day from October levels. But analysts are telling me that's not going to cut it. That's not going to be enough to really help support the market. We need a bigger cut than that. All right. But definitely uh, fascinating to watch uh, in terms of the oil trade because rally today, but a lot of selling. Jessica, thank you so much. Following the oil and energy markets for Jessica Summers, she's oil trading reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You bet. So, you know, it's interesting, um, but I do think about that G20 meeting. We keep talking about Dave mentioned some of these macro events, and I think here we are once again. Earnings are kind of wrapping up. We'll get a few reports, but now we have to kind of look at these big macro um, stories that are out there to determine what kind of goes on. And this G20 meeting, because, you know, let's not forget that obviously we've been very focused on President Trump and President Xi. President Putin uh, yeah. going to be there as well, mm-hmm. and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, going to be there as well. So, I, don't you think about them though? Saudi Arabia pumping out more oil. This is—they don't need lower prices; they need higher prices, right? We talk right. about how he's diversifying or trying to his economy because uh, the government coffers. I mean, still, you know, a lot of money, but they have come down as they continue to pay out benefits uh, to their population, and so this that puts them in a little bit of a squeeze, perhaps. Right, and you know it comes against this backdrop of big questions around global trade. Who's got the upper hand? Where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. And it it was interesting to watch investors' sentiment or their attention, I should say, really shift post-midterms to say, all right, what are we going to hear from the G20? What are we going to hear from the G20? And it does feel like stocks are going to move. Stocks, bonds, currencies, price of oil, all of it you know, could move depending on what's said, what's not said, what the president says, what the president tweets. We'll exactly. See. And what it means for really the global economy, because everything hinges off of that. Driving down your freeway. Midnight alleys Wars on a Monday afternoon. I like it. Uh, you know, we've been talking about how radically cars are changing right before our eyes. Yeah. And of course, they have changed pretty fast since we were kids or pretty dramatically since we were kids, but it does feel like we're at a pretty major inflection point. Right at the heart of that, Tim McDonough is the head of the automotive business at Unity Technologies, joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. Uh, Tim, great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for having us. So I'm fascinated by what you do in part because your company started in gaming, and I think anybody who has gotten into a newer car, certainly into a prototype car, looks at the dashboard and thinks, wow, I'm kind of in a different world. And, and you can see the affinity and the, and the connections, as it were, to how we think about interactivity and, and games to, to some extent. What's the biggest transformation that's happening for drivers when it comes to new technology and virtual reality? Well, I think what you're seeing happening is technology that was born in gaming about 15 years ago is really being used by the automotive industry to the entire process of designing, building, selling, and then delivering what the in-car experience is going to look like in the future. Um, and Unity is a key part of that, that process um, where they're going better uh, in terms of quality. They're doing things faster um, than they ever were able to before, and they're also doing things less expensively. So, okay. So talk to us a little bit about virtual reality and how that plays into uh, auto design and how it's really kind of changing how we're going to be doing things or already is. Yeah. What's so exciting is that it's already here. Um, So we're working with eight of the top 10 uh, automotive companies in the world right now. Um, And in the design studio, uh, what designers are able to do today is design something in in a CAD program on a, a you know, a 21-inch monitor. And if they want to experience that car in sort of real life at human scale, uh, they put the, the, the car model in the Unity, they put on a, a VR headset, and there it is in front of them. They can get in it, they can walk around it, they can crouch down and look at all the sight lines and the reflections, uh, and they can experience uh, what the car will look like in reality way earlier in the design process than was ever before. It's br- possible. You know, I got to tell you, a few years back, I did uh, a story with Caterpillar, and they were using VR, too, to design um, big tractors and things and where they could put folks into the cab to kind of get a feeling of, you know, were things put in the right places, you know, because they just, you know, they said, you know, once you get too far along in that design process, it's really hard to go back. So it's really fascinating to see how VR, you know, is really kind of maybe changing the way we approach design and really manufacturing. It, it absolutely is. And, and one of our one of our clients is the Volkswagen Group, um, and they gave us the, the statistic that in their design process, just by using Unity um, in that phase of, of designing a car, they save upwards of five million euros per model. And for a company of their size that has thirteen brands, from Audi to VW to Bugatti to Lamborghini, uh, that ends up adding up to a whole lot of uh, potential savings. And so, Tim, you know, one of the things that seems to be going on is that we as humans are completely changing our relationship in many ways with our cars. We're expecting more of them. We live in an age where we keep being told that autonomous driving or certainly assisted driving it is right around the corner. You know, what are the implications of that for safety? What are the implications of that for you know, what cars may look like? You're, you're in the business of kind of looking around the corner. What should we expect? So I, I think what we're seeing a lot of automotive companies do is, is spend a lot of their effort on figuring out what the inside of the car is going to look like mm. and what that experience will be like. Uh, and so when when you started this segment, you, you mentioned what are those screens doing? Um, every company we're working with is prototyping and designing. What will people do when they're not holding the steering wheel? Right. Will they be playing games? And I think a lot of people believe that's the case. Uh, they could be games on the dashboard. They could be games that are actually using the sensors in the car. So you could be interacting with uh, augmented reality games, as an example, or multiple people playing games on phones hooked into the car. 
um, and they'll be using uh, other entertainment services, whether it's movies or shopping services. Um, and so I think you're just going to see those screens get bigger and bigger and bigger and, and, and all kinds of new scenarios be designed. And, and most of that's today being prototyped in Unity, and we're, we're working again with a lot of the, the automotive manufacturers to figure out how do we prototype it, how do we do the customer research to validate what's going to work, and then how do we very quickly go from prototyping into production? Very cool stuff. Um, fascinating. Hey, Tim, nice to catch up with you. Tim McDonough is head of automotive business at Unity Technologies uh, on the phone from Los Angeles. And, of course, the L.A. Auto Show uh, kicking uh, off uh, tomorrow, I believe. So we'll yeah. begin you know, looking for some headlines out of that space about what's going on uh, in the auto sector. And as I said, you know, there's a lot going on today. We've got a story on Tesla. We've got, of course, GM cutting jobs, right. which is uh, what we're going to talk about a little bit later on. And uh, a lot of changes. And you do wonder about who will be the dominant players. I don't know. Is it three years from now, five years from now, Jason? Hard to tell. Or a year from now. It's like the Rockettes are back. Yeah, it's like the Rockettes are back with us. A little Mariah Carey for you. It's not all I want for Christmas is you because people were out shopping up a storm, so they obviously They know what they want for Christmas. (laughs) They want a lot more. Black Friday uh, weekend sales data from third-party analytics providers indicating a pretty merry start to the holiday season. Online sales, Jason, listen to this, taking more share even ahead of Cyber Monday. Then we've got Cyber Monday. We'll look for those results uh, tomorrow. All over this is Marissa Tarleton. She's retail analyst, chief marketing officer at Retail Me Not, joining us uh, from Austin, Texas. Hey, Marissa, good to have you here with us. So tell us a little bit more. I I have to be honest, I did a bunch of online shopping uh, over the weekend. Um, Give us an idea of how things went, who really... Uh, what what kind of retail really uh, had a had a good weekend holiday weekend? Sure, yeah, you and everyone else I think did some <laughs> online shopping over the last few days. So um, you've probably seen some of the reports. Adobe was one of the first to come out with a twenty four percent increase year on year in spend on Black Friday, and certainly um, excited to see the e commerce growth in particular on Black Friday, uh, and that will absolutely follow through to today. Today is expected to be a record break online day of sales. So retailers are very excited, not only about Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but the weekend. I think one of the wins for consumers, in addition to retailers, is the deals sort of continued through the whole weekend. It's not just about the the single day anymore. It's about the whole period of time, and the the deals kind of continue through. So you don't necessarily have to rush in uh, for fear of missing out. And and what triggered that? I mean, it seems so obvious in retrospect, because, you know, everybody's kind of chilling out over the Thanksgiving weekend. But, you know, as you alluded to, up until this point, it has been very like, set on these days. Right. And, like there will be no deals until Cyber Monday. And yet people obviously are willing to shop I, like I, Carol I, all I, weekend. I have to say, we had a conversation at home. We're like, does it, is it really Black Friday and Cyber Monday anymore? Because it feels like the deals start a lot earlier and that they continue, Marissa. They really do. So we saw that in the Retail Me Not data, we saw that deals started around November 10th. So that's a full week earlier than what we saw last year. So what that means to retailers is they have to be out with Black Friday and Cyber Monday offers and messaging for up to four to six weeks during this period of time, which is difficult. And what that means is, and I do think it has an implication to those single days in the offers, is they're always on with good. And then they dial up or down just a tad, but they don't have 
those crazy single day offers the way we used to see where people would break down stores and trample people um, just to get through. So that's a win again for I think both retailers and consumers that there's just great deals out for a few weeks. You don't have to drop everything. You don't have to miss Thanksgiving if you want, if you don't want. Um, You can kind of patiently find the great deal over the weekend. So let's go down a level. Who's doing this well in the sense of who's taking a sophisticated approach or an especially successful approach in your estimation? Because everybody can sort of slap up a, you know, 50 percent off or or whatever it is. But are there some clever deals or or things out there that that are drawing more people in? Yeah, let me give you a few examples. I love what Kohl's has been doing over the last couple of days because they have offers that are are great in that they have an extra 15% off everything, but then they also have Kohl's cash offers, which what that does is it drives the consumer to come back to the store at a later date. Target is doing the same thing with a gift card with purchase. So you're not only giving a discount right now, but you're encouraging a future purchase, and I just think that's smart promotions. I also love what Old Navy has been doing where – with their sock uh, program where you, you actually are paying a dollar, but they're donating a dollar to a charity. So again, a lot of retailers playing hard around cause and, and showing their values more in their marketing and, and consumers, specifically millennials are responding to that and it's impacting where they buy. Interesting. So, Old Navy sort of essentially taking a page from Tom's or mm-hmm, Bombas, who right. I think does the, uh, the buy one, you know, buy one, donate one model, right? Yeah, exactly. People respond to that. I mean, it, 50% of millennials have said that they will literally choose a retailer based on it aligning to their values and, and their causes. As a millennial, I feel that way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, but it definitely catches my attention, definitely catches my daughter's attention, something like that. Tell me, though, brick and mortar versus online. I did a lot online, but, you know, people still predominantly um, do the majority of their shopping, right, in brick and mortar. Well, that's their preference. And, uh, you will you know, we will continue to see the majority of the growth coming from e-commerce. Seeing some of the, the trends on Friday with Black Friday, specifically with regards to e-commerce growth, is fantastic and significant. But that said, when Retail Me Not talks to our consumers in our survey data, 90% of millennials say that they plan to do the majority of their shopping in a store. So that's significant. This is the generation mostly on their mobile phone, on their mobile device, and that wants a product now and wants ease of experience and immediate. And they are doing the majority of their shopping in a store. So I don't think you you should be using the Black Friday and Cyber Monday trends that will be heavily e-commerce growth as an indication for the whole season. The store is very much alive and well. And a lot of retailers are investing smartly in their stores with fun experiences to help differentiate. All right, Marissa, I got to ask you about one thing that jumped out at me in the the research you were nice enough to share with us. And this is about self-gifting and then a little bit of wellness shopping. So this is not a term I had heard before, Carol, selfish shop. Men, shockingly, are more likely 84% to selfish shop than women, 73%, meaning they're out shopping. They're going to get something for themselves. I completely confess uh, to doing that. I mean, why not? The deals are there. I mean, why not buy yourself a new phone or TV today if you're looking for one? I mean, you can't assume that someone's going to buy you something of that with that price point, right? But yeah, the trend around self-gifting is always been fascinating and we see this number go up every year and all it really means is consumers are smart enough to not only buy for others but buy for themselves when the deals are there why not take advantage i am shocked though that it's a higher percentage of men who are supposed to do this or really men are selfish (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm not going to. Any I'm research on that? On that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's all you, Carol. <laughs> and what about this idea of buying for experiences? Because, you know, you yeah. point out people are buying, you know, spa gift cards and things like that. It, it That feels sort of millennialish too, right? That it's not just about stuff. It's about doing things. Absolutely. And, and this is one that we've also seen grow every year for the last three years. Consumers aren't just looking for stuff. 70% plan to buy things in the experience realm. So it could be anything from spas to gym to manicures. And, I, you know, I think that's partially driven by millennials, but we do see it across all generations. And this is the time to think about fun things to do, not just fun things to collect. Um, so it's just helpful for retailers to remember that it's not only about gifting. Right. It's about the person buying for themselves. And that may not always be a device or an electronic or something for the home. It could be a trip. It could be something for yeah. the, for next year. So it just helps retailers plan. I'm into experiences. I think me that's too. a great gift. Uh, Marissa Charlton, retail analyst and chief marketing officer at Retail Me Not, joining us on the phone from Austin, Texas. This is sort of your Christmas already. It lasts, you know, it, apparently <laughs> it lasts most of the year at this point. I mean, there was another uh, bit of the research, Carol, that I saw that essentially says Prime Day back in July essentially kicks off the holiday shopping. Prime Day too. in July. There you go. It's nutty. It just starts earlier and earlier. I love all this. Re- I could geek out on this all day long. This Selfish so shopping. Selfish shop. More I'm men than women. I learned something today. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We want to bring in our next guest because Toys R Us, this has certainly been in the news over the last year. And uh, KKR and Bain Capital recently announced the establishment of a $20 million fund for some former Toys R Us employees in the U.S. who lost their jobs. Victim compensation expert Ken Feinberg is back with us. He's going to be overseeing the distribution of those funds. It's a task he's very familiar with, having done the same uh, for funds from disasters such as the 9-11 attacks, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, many, many more. Ken joins us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C., and, of course, is head of the law offices that bear his name. Ken, great to have you back. Back here on Bloomberg Radio. Tell us a little bit about this fund and how you folks will determine who gets what in terms of those former employees at Toys R Us. Well, Bain and KKR came to myself and my colleague Camille Byros in Washington and said, you're the experts. We want you to design, implement, and administer a $20 million fund, maybe more if others will contribute, to provide compensation to eligible employees. Well, we sat down and uh, worked out a draft formula that takes into account tenure, salary level, severance payments lost, and uh, came up with a formula that would, uh, if implemented, would provide eligible employees based on those variables anywhere from a check for $200 to a check for almost $13,000. And we have now floated that plan. And that plan will be the subject of discussion for the next 10 days. I want to get input from the employees mm-hmm. and others. And then uh, Camille and I will finalize a formula and hope to get the $20 million distributed uh, beginning before Christmas. Camille, of course, being Camille Biros, who, along with yourself, will administer that program. Correct. And, and so, Ken, you know, as Carol mentioned at the top, you know, you've worked on a lot of similar but not exactly the same uh, types of cases. This is not something we see a lot uh, in essentially buyouts uh, gone wrong. What do you think moved ultimately KKR and Bain to take this step? To well, create you'll this have to fund? ask them. 
I mean, I must say, you're correct. This is rather unprecedented. It's one thing for the federal government to put up funds after 9-11, and it's another thing for BP after the oil spill to put up billions of dollars, or after a a tragedy like the Boston Marathon, donors all over the country, private citizens, send in money. But this, I must say, in, in our experience over the last 35 years, for two companies like Bain and KKR, to front this type of money under no legal obligation. Uh, well, I mean, I must. I find it rather uh, interesting and, and in the public interest. You say unprecedented. And they're doing this. You'll you, have to ask them why. Ken, you say unprecedented. Does this set a precedent for future bankruptcies to come? I don't, I, I don't know about a precedent. We take these tragedies one at a time. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like this. Yeah. But the idea that uh, Bain and KKR inviting others to right. contribute, to distribute this money in the next 30 days, uh, I think is uh, is to be um, praised, frankly. And so what's been the initial reaction to that specific element, Ken, this idea? Because a couple of the hedge funds, the, the creditors have been reluctant, publicly reluctant at least, uh, to contribute to this. Is there any sense that people may move uh, and and change their minds or other people may join in in the, in the coming days or weeks? I have no idea. I can tell you that the uh, reaction of the employees is mixed. Mm. I think depending on how an employee would would fare under this draft program. Some have written us uh, and have said, uh, very good, thank you, this is wonderful, this is around Christmas time, we're grateful. Others have complained it's not enough or we're not eligible or under your formula will be shortchanged. So I think that is rather standard. I find in most of these uh, these compensation programs uh, um, that that you'll have some that are that are um, satisfied and others that are not, and that goes with the territory. Right now, whether others will contribute, you'll have to ask them. But I think Bain and KKR have certainly uh, laid out a marker uh, of of uh, generosity and of a desire to try and help these employees, and I think that should be um, should be ratified and and praised. And. Given that this is unprecedented, as we've discussed, what is it most similar to that that you've worked on before? What models did you draw on or and what experience did you draw on to to create this fund? Well, no two of these funds are the same, but I would say the closest is the 9-11 fund or the BP oil spill fund in the sense that one size does not fill all, fit all. The amount of money that an eligible employee will receive under this program is tied to certain variables, tenure, employment at Toys R Us, salary, what were you making in 2017, uh, 16 uh, uh, at at the company, Mm -hmm. part-time, full-time, permanent employee status, seasonal employees are not eligible, there's not enough money, what were your minimum earnings, you had to have made at least $5,000, what were your maximum earnings, you cannot receive any of this compensation if you earned over $110,000. So these variables are somewhat similar to the variables that decide what you'll receive after 9-11 or what you'll receive after the BP oil spill. But there are differences, of course, and um, we're now welcoming comment from employees and the public and others. Right. What do you think about this formula? How can it be improved and what should we do with it? Hey, Ken, just got quickly about 30 seconds here, though. I do wonder about 
these kinds of funds, and certainly when it's a calamity like 9-11, you know, it's compensation for, you know, to somehow maybe ease what happened. Uh, you know, those are difficult situations. But just quickly, do you think this might act as a deterrent, you know, certainly in the business community from people being kind of reckless in a situation? Just very quickly. No, I don't think so. Okay. This, this has nothing to do with deterrence. This has to do with trying to do right by the, by the uh, employees. All right. Ken Feinberg, we always appreciate your time. Ken Feinberg, attorney at the law offices, of course, of Kenneth R. Feinberg, joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in the nation's capital. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, and we are Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Time for the drive to the close. Just got about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Kathy Boyle back with us, president and founder at Chapin Hill Advisors, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you back with us. Great to be here in this fancy new studio. It's pretty fancy schmancy, isn't it? It is. I know. Um, uh, the market, not so fancy schmancy. Uh, it's definitely got a lot of volatility in it. Uh, depending on the day, it's good to be a bull or bear. It just depends mm-hmm. on the day. Uh, what do you make of the environment and the volatility? So it's really, well, it's been very volatile but the VIX has actually not skyrocketed to where yeah. it was before. why not I, I, people are still apathetic people have gotten trained nine years nine years every dip it goes back up it goes back up and so it was down 13 percent on Friday it's at 1881 so below 20 yeah 19 cool. and change today you know so people are still not taking this seriously and anybody like me who's been you know saying oh watch out or like, you know, some, one of my friends emailed me and says, nice that you're finally right the other day. <laughs> Ouch. Every now and again. Friend, not friend. <laughs> so can we talk a little tech stocks? Because I feel like that's something that people are really starting to at least try and get their arms around after really relying on them for so much of this bull market. Certainly in 2018, they were such a big, big part of the run. And now you have sort of a collective threat, but also all these little existential questions about individual names. How do you parse that out in this market? So FANG, right? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. That's been the driver. Yeah. It makes up fully one-third of the Momentum ETF, Invesco's ETF. So it's in also top 10 hedge funds. All the big hedge funds really drive performance. Very small percentage of hedge funds actually drive the uh, performance of them. And it's those are huge positions. So parsing out, it's like when the big boys go down, so do the others. You know, it's like the rowboat. You know, it can only yeah. go up the wave. And if the wave comes and goes over, it's all going so the tangential effects of the suppliers for the you know for the tech for the whether it's microchips or apple phone cases it just reverberates on so that's the issue the thing is i'm trying to get my head around this because i do feel like kathy jason and i have more and more people coming on or we have more and more bloomberg stories where people are talking about you know potential for recession over the next couple of years an earnings slowdown 
but the world isn't falling apart. We just talked about General Motors and we're kind of applauding them. Investors are applauding them because they're saying, Mary Barr is saying, you know, we're in a good economy. This is a time for us to make some, you know, strong changes, cut workers, close plants, because we're kind of reorienting the company for what's going to be needed in the future. And investors like it. So I'm trying to get my head around, here's a major CEO saying, good economy, things are good. People were out shopping over the weekend. And yet, there's a lot of recession talk, and the markets are certainly acting like things are coming undone. Right. So, look, what it, what's that really saying to the average American? How about if that was your father working for GM and being laid off and factories closing? Same with Lowe's. I was listening to Pandora this weekend. I don't have the free version, so I get the commercials. And I couldn't believe I was hearing one commercial after another for Lowe's closing this store in this location. And at first I thought it was far away, and then I heard one locally. And so, you know, the big box retailers, um, they have to reinvigorate. They have to figure out how they're going forward. The Consumers are spending money, but most of America lives paycheck to paycheck. And so that's the problem. So we have two tiers in the economy, really. We have the, the very wealthy, right. who are still fine, and who actually are the ones who own most of the stocks. And then we have the average worker bee, who is not prepared for retirement, plans on relying on Social Security, which is underfunded. So, you know, all the indicators that we look at, a lot of it, from unemployment numbers to But what's the GDP. stock market following? So what the indicators? stock market is is anticipatory, okay? It's always looking forward. And so earnings have started to become downgraded. The last quarterly reports, everybody kind of guided down. So everybody's now expecting, okay, even if the Fed doesn't tighten, QE is out, QT is in, right? Quantitative tra- tightening. Mm-hmm. So uh, across the world, that reverberates from the financing of the greenback to whether you're going to finance your mortgage. Housing right. stocks are in a slump. They're down 30 40%. Right, we've seen, yeah. All right, so I'm going to give you a, a multiple choice. I want you to pick the one thing you're most worried about, <laughs> oil, Fed, or trade. Uh, I would say Fed because Fed is going to affect bonds as well as stocks and the dollar. And so it's going to reverberate over into international stocks as well. So in looking for a safe place to invest, you have to consider those things. So bonds and stocks no longer have a negative correlation. So that 60-40 model everybody loves to tell you about on mm-hmm. Wall Street better be thrown out. And you're worried that basically the Fed gets it wrong? The Fed has gotten it wrong. You know, they eased too long and we're propping up stocks. So where'd the money go? Risk assets. How many little ladies are in utilities and Exxon and everything else? What if they can't pay their dividend? If oil stays down here at 50, they're going to have trouble covering those dividends. So there goes your dividend cash flow and then the stock goes down if the dividend gets cut. Hey, just got about 25 seconds. So 60-40 if that, for throwing that old model out, what is the model? So you really have to look at alternatives. You have to look at managers who did well in the 08 crash and he used hedges or went uh, short or inverse or whatever. Somebody who protects you or put some hedges into your portfolio and look at alternatives like gold. Interesting. Go to gold. Not Bitcoin. That's <laughs> Not for sure. <laughs> Kathy Boyle, thank you. Good to see you. President and founder, Chapin Hill Advisors, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.